Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The views expressed on this show, the views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the KUCI Radio, its management, or the University of California Board of Regents. Welcome to Ask a Leader. I am your host, Claudia Shambaugh. Today, we have a special insider's perspective on autism with my first guest, Deborah Lipsky, who will help us rethink what this diagnosis means. And later in the show, I'll offer a tribute to pediatrician Dr. Mark Lerner, who leaves UCI Medical after 28 years of service. We'll be back in a moment. Thank you very much for joining me this morning on Ask a Leader. My first guest is Deborah Lipsky, an accomplished writer and public speaker based in uh, Linnaeus, Maine. That's where she's going to be talking to us from. Formerly a wildlife rehabilitator specializing in raccoons, Deborah has spent the last 24 years studying them in the wild and learning social skills from them. All her life, she struggled without a diagnosis, receiving no professional help. She's overcome much adversity despite enormous obstacles. In 1988, Deborah earned a master's degree in education and counseling. In, nine, in 2005, while in her 40s, she was diagnosed with high-functioning autism. Her latest book is, and stay with me for this lovely long title, From Anxiety to Meltdown, How Individuals on the Autistic Spectrum Deal with Anxiety, Experience Meltdowns, Manifest Tantrums, and How You Can Intervene Effectively. As with her other work, Deborah Lipsky details remarkable insights on what is is to cope with autism. Deborah Lipsky, welcome to Ask a Leader. Thank you. I'm so glad that you are on the show today with us, all the way from Maine. I know, and you're crowding us with a very, very busy schedule of engagements there. First, Deborah, let's go over the language and the labels that are useful that are acceptable to you. How do we refer to each group of whom we speak? Autistic, non-autistic, Aspie, what what are the labels we get to use from this show onward? Well, you know, that, that's going to vary from individual to individual. Uh, the label that I prefer for myself is the same that uh, Temple Glendon prefers for herself, and I am an autistic person. I prefer that title because to say, for me, to say a person with autism sort of implies I'm a person with a disability that's dragging like a ball in the chain. I, see. I am proud to be autistic. I think differently than the rest of the world, and that is part of who I am uh, and not a diagnosis. So it's part of my character. Um, I, I am not an Aspie because I have high-functioning autism. I do not have Asperger's. And I also don't look at the world as autistic and neurotypical. There's nothing typical about people who don't have autism. I refer to the world as <laughs> either people that are autistic or not autistic. That's, that's what we can use then. That's acceptable. Yes. Non-autistic people is much better than neurotypicals. Because, right, it could be not typical in other ways. And as, as we were talking about prior to this program, we like to, both of us, I think, we and others like to look at this 
a whole continuum as a, as a spectrum, a continuum that all of us are on at a, at a different place. And some are more high, some are high functioning, some are lower functioning, but we all, there are all sorts of characteristics that we all have a smidgen of, uh, and some maybe more persistently, and some maybe it's a, it's a matter of some, some sort of coming and going in, in a sharper relief. Is that fair to say? I think it's fair to say. I think a great analogy is, and bear with me, it's a little, you know, intense, but it makes a lot of sense. When we're looking at autism as a spectrum, think of pregnancy. Uh, think of a woman who's maybe three months pregnant standing next to a woman who's nine months pregnant. Now, they both have different characteristics. Say, for instance, the three months will probably busting her brains out in the morning, you know, not feeling well, and she doesn't show at all. This is the woman who's nine months pregnant and obviously doesn't have the morning sickness, but is obviously uh, very, uh, very large. Now, they both present differently, but they're both still pregnant. If they both went to the dentist for a cleaning or an x-ray, they both still would need to put on lead uh, uh, vests. So it's the same thing with autism. It doesn't matter whether you're really high-functioning um, or you're nonverbal. Uh, the way you interact with us is the same. Really? It's that? We're all still autistic. It doesn't matter. When I work with either nonverbal individuals or I work with uh, people with Asperger's, how we perceive the world is identical. It doesn't matter. And that is the key that I think readers have to, or listeners have to come away with, is that it doesn't matter where your child is on the spectrum. They're still going to think and process things very similar to somebody else with autism on a different level. Now, one thing you mentioned was uh, you distinguished Asperger's from high-functioning autism, but my understanding is a great many people with Asperger's are very high-functioning and on the spectrum. How do you make your distinction that you do? Well, unfortunately, being autistic, I make my distinction based on the DSM-4. I was diagnosed with high-functioning autism, a diagnosis of 299.00, and Asperger's is 299. Point, uh, 80 or 90. There is a, a minor distinction between the two. Um, uh, and again, it's really irrelevant at this point because my understanding is the DSM 5 in 2012 is going to eliminate Asperger's as a complete diagnosis. And remind our listeners DSM. Uh, it... It's a diagnostic criteria, uh, criteria used by various agencies of standardized way of looking at different. Um, uh, uh, I hate to use the word diseases, but illnesses or diagnoses, uh, mental health, uh, mental health issues, and the DSM-4 diagnostic criteria manual for five comes up next next year. Right, and I do remember when some of that nomenclature had been reconsidered, and it was um, quite controversial in that uh, I guess some people began to use and relate and work with various labels, that, uh, and that it was a little disheveling, and it may be it may be. Uh, course, re, as you said, when it's reconsidered, that may be some more re-disheveling of uh, labels. But I appreciate, Deborah Lipsky, you're giving us what, what, what works and a better understanding about that. Well, I, when you say that you view autism as a cultural difference rather than a disease, are, you really are offering all of us a, a very special perspective. How did you arrive at this understanding, which is very different for most of us? Well, I think first I arrived at this understanding because uh, this is a very sobering statistic for your listeners, but the uh, leading statistics say that adults with autism, the leading cause of death in adults with autism is suicide. 
Wow. Now, and that comes from a lifelong a history of being told we don't fit in, we're a disease, we're an epidemic. Um, I, I'm really getting tired of these, these commercials that say, cure autism now. Mm-hmm. Please don't cure me. I like the way I am. I'm, only, I'm the same as you and anyone else in this world. I just think differently. I think more rationally and logically. And I'm beginning to think that the people with a disability are those without autism. Uh, because when I try to navigate myself in your world, you make no sense. And the case in point is I actually just had a fly in from somewhere. Oh, we were going to get uh, to that analogy. I'm glad you're getting to it right now. That's perfect. It's very rich in your book on um, anxiety to meltdown. It's perfect. Well, you know, one of the things we can wise look at the cultural difference, it's people without autism tend to be more emotional and seem not to have much <laughs> logical common sense at times. As I was saying, as I was coming back from the airport, I was going through TSA screening, which is the perfect place to really look at where there is no logic. Um, the TSA screener asked me if, um, if I was aware of somebody unknowingly putting something in my bag. And I said, if I was unaware of it, how would I know? Good. I think we've all of us have wondered about that, but I'm so glad you bring it up. You know, and, and I can take it just from TSA. I could go to the grocery store. In the grocery store, when the lady behind the uh, a cashier there asked you, and how are you today, uh, we're expected to answer with a lie. I'm very well, thank you. Even if you're feeling like, you know, uh, really bad, you're not allowed to tell the truth. And they're asking a question that they don't even want an answer to. It's like, why do you engage in such frivolous conversation? And so I'd rather ask you a more pointed question. Hey, did you know that um, you know, strawberries are good for your health or something like that, rather than ask a question that you don't want an answer to and then give an answer that's a lie anyway? Well, I, I know that um, we unfortunately we don't have an opportunity for call-ins. Uh, so I know people, though, will, would say there is a rationale for some of those things, like what the TSA asks about your bag. They're, they're looking for your reaction. There's other things. But, but the principal focus of this interview isn't to sort of counter with, well, what's the perspective and rationale? The whole purpose of this program today, Deborah, and you and I talking about what's mm-hmm. going on with the with an autistic mind and coping and all that. So we have our rare moment with you to get a right. better understanding. So uh, we're, um, the rationales are going to be <laughs> tossed to the wayside so that we get the best possible look at what you're coping with, uh, how how you cope, and what we can do as um, your uh, circle of family and friends, educators, mm-hmm. medical practitioners, and all that. So I, I appreciate your mentioning that. And I, I know that the, another al- analogy used was about uh, actually a, a in-flight that uh, you look around and you wonder about this sort of airplane security. Could it, the assumptions that you say about, you know, uh, that the airlines are assuming that we're not really concerned about clarity about a evacuation, but that's all you can think about, though, right? When you go through that measure of uh, uh, the onboard instructions. Well, it's about, it's not some, it's about, well, it goes to the artistic core of needing a script and backup scripts. When I get on a plane, I'd like to know if there's trouble, you know, what are my options? What are my backup plans? We don't like to be off script, and our script is okay, we're going to go from point A to point B, and that is great, but what if? A lot of times these kids and adults will always start badgering the person with them. Well, what if we go to the store and the road is closed? What if we go to the store and they're out of milk? What if is a desperate cry for them saying, I need a script, I need a backup plan. There's not enough information for me to formulate something where I can feel comfortable going out into the world and doing this activity. 
And so it's more than clarity. It's about formulating a backup plan so that we never go off the script. I mean, the worst thing for an autistic person is to fall off script, and any, any listener will know. You change the script suddenly and abruptly, meltdown right there. So I understand with clarity you get some details, but with a backup plan you've got structure, you've got a you've got a whole you've got a system in which to mobilize. It's 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 an activation. It's not just a sort of an understanding. Exactly. You know, it goes beyond understanding. The clarity is one thing. It's about saying when I'm flying, I want to make sure I get to the other get to my destination alive. And in an airplane, you're kind of limited by options. If things go wrong, I still like to know what those options are to improve any chances. So it's about a backup plan. Well, what if? Exactly, exactly. I that's great uh, to get that understanding. Now, t uh, we're talking uh, this morning with Deborah Lipsky, writer and speaker, giving her insider's perspective on autism here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming live today as always on KUCI.org. Well, Deborah, you have worked uh, a great deal, as I'd mentioned earlier, with animals. You you observed. In raccoon behavior, some special things. What did observing their behavior tell you about what you were experiencing and feeling? Well, and I just want to clarify too. You Please. really stressed that I work with raccoons. That was only a side hobby. I mean, I've had other jobs and learned skills elsewhere. Yes. But particularly with raccoons, because I live on a farm, we have lots of the animals. I've got horses and everything. But in the wild, I studied how raccoons interacted with other species. Uh, there's a quite a social structure. Uh, I had feeding stations and. The raccoons would come, but so wouldn't the skunks and the, the feral cats. And I observed, because I'm very close to raccoons, I observed how they interacted with other species, how they, uh, how even uh, litter mates learned to take turns, you know, when they were playing with a, toy, a little toy or, or something that caught their attention. And um, it, it just, it was just fascinating. I learned how cactile they were and how cactile I was. And, um, uh, you know, and I learned boundaries, all things, I learned boundaries. That's fascinating. You picked up on them being tactile. You had to have been really astutely observant to to get to that level of their um, their functioning. Um, it's not so much astutely observant as it is a gift of autism, being so overly focused and a special interest. Ah, we'll get. We'll talk about that. Of mine. Overfocus is a main feature, and actually, uh, Dr. Lerner, with whom we're going to talk uh, hear from later uh, in the show, he does talk about overfocuses where where it's been changed from uh, a different kind of a diagnosis and and how it's been um, been better addressed but so anyway that's the it's that very feature that provides a, an amazing sort of aptitude to uh, for research and uh, in interpersonal intrapersonal kind of, of functioning that's it's right. just and, and this hyperfocus is what allows us to break outside the box and make major contributions to society like Madame Curie uh, Diane Fossey, uh, you know, uh, some of the more modern-day people I don't want to mention because I'm not sure I'm supposed to on air, but there are people... Oh, you surely can. I think you can. We're not... It's, we just can't go into obscenities, profanities, oh. and decencies, but we... Yes, you can name names. Well, Dan Aykroyd admitted to having Asperger's, and if you look back at his com comedic style during SNL, you'll see it's a different kind of humor. Uh, Bill Gates is pretty much a reason why story, and boy, it screams Asperger's all over it. And yes. his ability to hyperfocus in our computers. I mean, he revolutionized the world with the PC. I thought his hyperfocus was market share too. <laughs> Maybe not innovate as much as just keep you know focusing on that market so that he could. But complete... isn't that he still focused in and zero or honed in on one particular area yes. and would not let go? Very tenacious. Yes. 
And that tenacity is what, in whatever area it is, it pays off because we just don't let go. I mean, it's called obsession to some people or, you know, a problem to others. And, and everything is a double-edged sword, and I'm using a metaphor there. I've learned them. They're kind of cute. Um, right, right. Double-edged, I would never grab a double-edged sword if I was in trouble. I mean, I would grab something else. But something <laughs> this, this is the brand I know your terrific uh, speaking engagements and that kind of thing. I'm, I'm really enjoying this very, very much. I haven't even, I, I'm not even giving you a taste of... Normally when I get up on the, on the stage, I'm much, I, I have more of a comedic style and uh, more of an engaging style. This is kind of my dry self. Well, we and we know that that's there, and we're going to ask about you know bookings and things like that where people can hear you. But for now, it's it's so important that we get a chance because I I first learned about you from the um, the King Fisher. I'm trying to think of the publisher. Yeah, Jessica uh, Kingsley. Jessica Kingsley uh, publication. Yeah, King Fisher is a fish, and has nothing to do with the publishing company I'm with. Yeah. Yeah, that's see, that's my flipped uh, flipped perspective, and so uh, through that. Uh, regular posting of their publications, I'd seen your terrific work on uh, anxiety. And so I thought this is, it's really essential that we all, uh, we use whatever means, and I have this radio show to uh, explore what this is. It's, um, it's, it's really hounding uh, uh, those um, autistic individuals uh, in coping in the, this world here. Well, I understand that much has been said about how you compare with Temple Grand? You just uh, uh, earlier uh, made a fleeting reference to her uh, as also being autistic. Who she made uh, her self discovery also through animal behavior. Let's talk, uh, Deborah Lipsky, about how you two differ, where you part from her experience. Wow. Uh, well, you know, well, I, I will only say this, and I can only go by when I've heard her speak a few times. And one of the major differences, and, and she could have changed her philosophy by now. This was like uh, two, three years ago when I heard her speak. But she really stressed that early intervention was extremely critical, um, that the child get early intervention, you know, before the age of six in order to really make a difference in that child's life. And I'm completely opposite. To me, it doesn't matter where you are in terms of what age you are to get a diagnosis. I mean, parents who get their child diagnosed at 16 still have a, just as great a chance as those that get diagnosed at 6, all depending on how they handle it. So for me, and I got diagnosed at age 45, and before that I was a recluse. I couldn't hold a job, and uh, being autistic made me very successful. So um, it, it worked. <laughs> it gave me job security later on in life when I needed it the most. Well, I want uh, and, yes. You know, and, and Temple comes from a different generation. You know, she is like 10 or 15 years older than me. She grew up with a nanny, so her um, environmental influences were different uh, than mine. You know, it, it, it just somebody who goes on the circuit who's 10 or 15 years younger than me would be different than me, too, just because environmental, social, uh, economic status, et cetera, comes into play also in how you handled it. I mean, I grew up very German, so for me... Uh, there was really no issue of autism in the house because my mother was so strict and rigid and concrete and literal. It, it just blended right well with, with my diagnosis. We didn't know there was a problem until I left the house to go out into the world. So the two cultures of autism and uh, sort of the Germanic orderliness really uh, fused nicely oh, in your upbringing. I wouldn't be surprised if Germany has some of the lowest rates of autism in the world. And if you look, it's not because they have the lowest rate of autism. It's because as a culture, they're so close to being autistic, it isn't funny. Wow. We heard that here first on KUCI 80.9 FM in Irvine. That is really, that's an amazing consideration there. We're listening. Well, I grew up in Germany. I mean, I, you know, I'm born in Germany. I grew up in Germany. I grew up under the, you know, the very strict German, Germanic. I don't know how Germany is today, but I mean, I know 40, 30 years ago, it was, it was a, you know, it was very strict, rigid and very, you know, 
Um, I referred to my mother as mother and father. It was very pedantic language. I just want, for those who have joined us, we're talking with Deborah Lipsky, writer and speaker. She's giving her very privileged insider's a perspective on autism. It's not so privileged anymore as we get to uh, more of her publications and access to um, some of her speaking engagements. Um, I'm just wondering, though, doesn't it really matter, Deborah, that your high-functioning aspects helped you uh, to function as well as you have without a diagnosis for as many years as you have? know that God doesn't make mistakes. There's a reason for everybody, and if you have limitations in one area, trust me, there will be uh, great gifts in other areas. And for me, uh, the ability to learn to adapt, and, and I call it the cloak and dagger effect, blend in without, you know, uh, so the people, I can still keep my autistic traits, but yet not look autistic. Um, and that innovation to, to try things where I blend in comes, stems right back from the gift to think outside of the box and to to be different and to find a solution. See, the autistic model is for every problem there's an answer. That's it. It's concrete. There's, a pro- there's an answer for every problem. It's just times we have to hyper-focus to find it. Okay. It's black, it's white. It's black and white. Really, we don't live in a shade of gray. We really don't. We may come across some of the children that grow up and are taught social skills, and even I've been taught to uh, make it appear like I can accept the areas of gray, but the reality is we don't. Now, in your book... Deborah, from anxiety to meltdown, you offer some compelling insights about what's going on when individuals with autism are trying to cope. You talk mm-hmm. about melting down, freezing. Can you give us some examples of what leads to meltdowns and tantrums? Well, first of all, let me clarify this because uh, there are other books out there on meltdowns and they interchange the word tantrum and meltdown. Meltdowns and tantrums are diametrically opposed from each other. They're not anywhere close. They're two different beasts. A meltdown is an involuntary reaction to overwhelming stressors, be they cognitive stressors or sensory stressors. A tantrum is a willful choice to manipulate somebody else's behavior. It has nothing to do with autism. Wow. That... So we want to distinguish between those two because we handle them completely differently. With a tantrum, you handle it with, you know, ABA or consequences or something, some sort of form of punishment or, or let them know, I mean, you know, just don't let them get away with a tantrum like you would any other child. With the meltdown, however, meltdowns commonly occur because uh, not getting understandable answers to questions, with a sudden dramatic change in routine or schedule, uh, vague or open-ended questions that leave, you know, them wondering that there's not enough clarity, uh, and communication issues. Uh, the, the easiest uh, set-off for a meltdown would be to tell a child no doubt uh, we'll see, maybe, uh, possibly tomorrow, if you're good, uh, a little bit later. Uh, those non-concrete time frames doesn't allow that person with autism to script, and just it, it just has, sends them free-floating. Uh, with us, without a script, is like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. It, it, it's the worst feeling in the whole wide world. And even a non-verbal, uh, severely autistic child in his little brain has backup scripts, even though he's not able to communicate to them. They have, they, they're very structured. This is so when it comes to riveting. Yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm just so riveted with this. You have to be very careful in communication. Ninety percent of most cognitive meltdowns are, uh, are a communication issue. Wow. And sensory uh, meltdowns occur when a lot of times when the parents will say, "Oh, just, just deal with it. Just, just go with it. We're only going to be in this store for five minutes." And 
Um, for instance, you know, again, I don't want to name any store, so let's go to American Go Grocery Store. You tell your child, okay, I'm going to go to the store. You're coming with me. We're only going to pick up eggs and milk, and we're leaving. And then when you get there, they're running this huge sale on everything. You're like, oh, what the heck, while I'm here, I'll pick up a few other things and grab a shopping cart. A, you just went off your script that you told Johnny that you're only going to get two things, and now you're grabbing a shopping cart and wandering around the store aimlessly. And B, you're subjecting Johnny, without foreknowledge, to longer sensory triggers, without any backup plans. I mean, if he doesn't have his skin uh, tools with him or he's not mentally prepared for it, those are key things that can set up a child or an adult with a meltdown that's unintentional. I'm not saying the parent does it deliberately, but these are considerations to keep in mind. Right. I have a hard time walking into any store if it's crowded or busy or during the height of the day. Now, I can't avoid society, unfortunately. You know what? Well, fortunately, I guess I'm married. I have a husband. I'm expected to provide. So when I go food shopping or grocery shopping, knowing that I can't deal with sensory, I go first thing in the morning or late at night before they close, so there's less amount of people there. So it's not about avoiding the situation. It is adapting it so that the triggers you know will set you off uh, are minimized. Right. And I remember that there was that piece about uh, when t- in Temple Grandin's film about how she didn't even want to cross that threshold. There was such an enormous amount of uncertainty. She just, I think it was somebody in the, the dramatization anyway in the film, they help her cross the threshold and sort of knock the store experience down into smaller manageable pieces. So maybe, do you have a, maybe you just have a particular, there's some stores you don't even go into because you know that it's going to be an overload. I wouldn't do. I don't care. I mean, Black Friday, you know, the day after Thanksgiving, oh. run to your local store, and, and because you're going to say 50%, I would have to be certifiably insane. I think I most people are, that, even. Yeah, to subject myself to that kind of a sensory overload. And I don't care if they were giving away electronics. I would not go only because sensory, that would be way out of my limit. I don't even go there. I don't go to crowded things like football games or stadium events because of the sensory issues, not just the people, but the lines, the crowding. And a lot of times parents will not understand that and take Johnny or put Johnny in a soccer team, you know, and besides having to deal with playing with other kids and, and, and doing a group event, he's got all the noise in the background from all the cheering uh, fans. It's just way too much for that child or individual to, to, to successfully navigate. What about a performing arts situation? What are you faced with there? Are you, is that a manageable prospect, or is that um, still inordinately overly stimulating? Well, in terms of them going or them being in it? going Attending it, just like you're talking about attending a sports event's a no-go. But what about a performing art experience? It's a, well, it depends on the individual. I mean, if, if an individual has an aversion to large crowds, long lines, uh, smells and noises, it doesn't matter whether it's performing arts or whether it's a ball game. If there's going to be clapping and cheering and that individual can't handle it, it's not good. But every person with autism is an individual with strengths. There are some kids and adults with autism that could be perfect in a, in a stadium and love that. Mm-hmm. I right. have no issue with that. Or they know the ritual of the sport event. They know the baseball ritual. They know what's... So even some, not all individuals with autism you know, have, have sensory issues that revolve around noises. I mean, there are some that have no problem listening to the clapping, the cheering, and the hooting, and the hoopla that goes on with a, with a sports event. Uh-huh. So it's up to that individual. There's no one pattern that fits us all. We all have our own unique abilities. Mm-hmm. Just like I love to collect military items, and you don't. You do, do well, you? I can't say all people should, you know, collect military items because that would be an unfair assessment. That's not your strength. You might love to uh, uh, crochet, which would absolutely kill me out of boredom. <laughs> um, so, you know, you have to understand. I always say 
understand and know the individual you're working with. Find out what their likes and dislikes are and their strengths and their weaknesses and work from that. If it's something that they want to attend, encourage them and do everything you can to try to minimize uh, the, the known stresses you know that might, they might anticipate and teach them. It's about empowering these kids when they become adults, when they lose all services at probably age 21, to learn to be able to adapt and mold and, and find unique solutions to everyday problems. And that, sli- that adaptive uh, capacity is sliding scale with how f- high-functioning one is. So, um, that's, so that's a, it's a huge factor. Well, again, I, I, because you have to, again, because autism is just not, it just, like you said, it, it, it's such a spectrum. You know, what might work for the high-functioning autistic person obviously may not work for the uh, non, and I don't like to go low-functioning. Uh, to be honest with you, these Okay, straighten me up. You know, nonverbal kids are not low-functioning. They are extremely, matter of fact, they're even brighter sometimes than the rest of us. You know why? Because when that child learns to use a Dynavox, when that child learns to use a PEC system and can't communicate verbally, what extreme intelligence it took to overcome that barrier and still find a way to communicate. What a miracle. What a miracle. So instead of putting the functions all along the functioning degree degree of functioning on the spectrum. It's a matter of features all up and down. It's a, a nonverbal shows somewhere on the the spectrum that uh, reflects the individual's um, I, can I say it inability to express in words what right. they're what they can uh, understand. But they're so we we that's an interesting point to to uh, to, con, to refine that verbiage so we can um, we can recognize that there's some there's a person in there. and I've always wondered when I'm approaching um, let's say an, a nonverbal autistic individual whether they're um, you know an adolescent or an adult tell me a Deborah Lipsky what how do we know whether we have permission to let's say grasp their forearm and and sort of uh, connect meaningfully <laughs> Okay, well, first of all, I, I, I do a lot of consultations that revolve around nonverbal individuals. And, and again, it's going to vary from individual to individual, but one of the key things to look for is when a nonverbal individual wants to communicate with you, they generally don't come up into your face. Okay? No. You know, or make, you know, they generally come up alongside of you or into their peripheral vision, and they might extend an arm out. Or they, they smile I'm, or vocalize. That's what I'm, what, the smiling and vocalizing is giving us a great deal of understanding, isn't it? And again, it depends on, uh, you know, it, 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 your question was so broad because oh, I'm sorry. I am the one-on-one aid working with that nonverbal child. I would interact a lot differently than if I was a stranger that just came in. Okay. For instance, when I come in and do a consultation, I have to see the environment. And when I first meet that child, I say, well, come on up and meet, meet Mary. And I'm like, no, I don't want to intrude. You know, what I'll do instead is because this person doesn't know me, I might sit next to them and wait for them to uh, make the interaction first. Rather than stress them out and say hi and look at me and, and touch them, right? Uh, you know, it, it, this is a really poor analogy, but it's the only one that really let's gets use it. Them. You know, and if you were to treat us like a little puppy or a little kitten, like an animal, how do you approach a strange puppy? Right? Do you go up to go, hey, puppy, kitty, kitty, or kitty, 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 and run up to it and just very friendly and make overt gestures? No, we approach an animal that we don't know very slowly, right? You put your hand out slowly, walk right. slowly, right. not make eye contact, and be non-threatening. So you don't want to be gregarious and outgoing and happy and bubbly if you don't know the individual with autism who's 
nonverbal, but just very cautious, like you're approaching, you know, a neighbor's dog for the first time. And let them, let them come to you. Yes, yes. I, there was one I remember I thought, well, I'll just show, I was just two days ago and I was on my bike and I, I sort of turned the bike around and they were abs, I offered my handlebars and mm-hmm. he was very tactile with uh, all the pieces around the handlebars and I wanted him to squeeze the brake and that was like, that was the thing to do. It was, it was pretty, I'm, I'm glad, you know, we, we worked out that moment. It's somebody I see occasionally. I don't know the person well, but I, but we recognize each other. So I, I always stop when I know I can. And uh, anyway, so that, there was a sort of a tactile kind of offering. Mm-hmm. And, and on, 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 on the heels of the tactile thing, another thing, too, is to, to say hello and, and to show that you're on the same vibration or that you want to communicate with individuals nonverbal. I usually will start stimming with them. If they stim or I'll just start to stim, whatever it is. What and do you mean by stimming? Stimming would be like, um, you know, if I were, like, I hate to use the word hand flapping. But if I'm twiddling a toy or if I'm moving my leg or, you know, if I'm just kind of shaking my hand out a little bit or doing some repetitive motion with my body. Yes. Even just rocking side to side. It's an invitation that says I'm stimming, I'm coming, you know, hello. And if they're doing it, I try to mimic it without it seeming like I'm mimicking it, but just as a gesture of, Hi, I understand, you know, and I'll do it, and, and they, they're much more open to that because you're on their wavelength. It's a head shake. It's a handshake kind of equivalent? Yeah, in a very abstract kind of way. It's kind of like, it's, it's more like not a handshake, but putting your hand out for the handshake. Because uh, the reason... child or adult will react positively, again, depending on where they are and what... And here, listeners have to understand, no matter what you read or what you hear... You have to take in consideration the entire person. It, it, all the strategies I, I just talked about or the things I've talked about will not work if you have an individual who's been beaten or abused or been subjected right. to environmental factors right. that go above and beyond. And so, I mean, you can't just blanket and say, we do this, we do that, generally under normal circumstances. Well, I, there's so much more I wanted to ask you about today. Um, there's this the SCARED model, the S-C-A-R-E-D model. I don't think we're going to get to go to that, but I want listeners to know that that's a, a, um, a, a phenomenon to look up. And I, I know based in the state of Maine, Deborah, that you, are, uh, you were recently, though, on a speaking circuit in the Pacific Northwest. I'd I like to – pardon me? And so, and do you have plans to come to Southern California for our listeners that are at the edge of their seats now to learn more from you? Well, you know, I have no formal commitments, but I, I tell the listeners I am more than happy to come out. Uh, agencies can sponsor me. I am very cheap when I fly out because for me it's not about the money, it's about educating people. And as I think you and I talked yesterday, uh, I, uh, the reason why I'm, one of the reasons why I'm so successful and why I have large audiences is because I make people laugh when I talk about being autistic in a non-autistic world. And that is a social skill I learned from Ellen DeGeneres. Yes. I spent years studying her comedy and watching her show, learning how she interacted, and I, she became my role model. And more powerful, she's a more powerful role model to me than Helen Keller was, who was my role model you know, prior to that. And, uh, you know, my goal is to meet her in person. I don't want to be on a show. I don't, you know, that's okay. I just want to meet her in person, give her a hug and thank her and say, without her, I would not be where I'm at. So if someone has any contact with her, I'd come out for free. <laughs> well, we're going to make sure this podcast makes that message go out there so that this this kind of meeting can happen. And I, I just want to say, Deborah Lipsky, uh, what a pleasure it's been having you as my guest today. 
for making known your important, if not essential, perspectives about autism so that we can rethink this process more productively and with more humanity. Deborah, thank you so much for all that you have uh, to tell us about today. Thank you for allowing me to share that with you and your listeners today. Thank you, and uh, we'll stay in touch, I hope, okay? I hope so. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after a brief station break to pay tribute to Dr. Mark Lerner with an interview about his work at UCI, where he's headed. Way down deep in your deep, deep heart is a fire. Way down deep in your deep, deep heart is a fire. Way down deep in your deep, deep heart, fire is a blaze and love is a spark. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My second guest on this program is Dr. Mark Lerner. He is the pediatrician a pediatrician and the developmental specialist at UCI Medical. He's been here for 28 years. He's retiring this month to become the first medical director for the Orange County Department of Education. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lerner. Thank you very much for having me today. It's wonderful to have you on and pay tribute to these valiant 28 years of service that you've availed the community throughout and I'm sure and beyond in terms of where the pediatric college has, uh, uh, where you've been contributing uh, in, in the whole field of, of pediatric medicine. Um, I'd like to start with uh, maybe just a little memory lane of what, what was P- uh, UCI Medical like when you very, at the very beginning of your career here some 28 years ago, there must have been, there was, managed care was different, everything was different, but can you just capture a little bit about what it was like then when you started out? Well, it was certainly interesting to come here to Irvine. I had a chance in visiting some relatives, I'm from the East Coast, and uh, visiting some relatives in California at the age of 16, I came to this very new university, a fairly barren hill here in, in Irvine with uh, really just uh, the center Um, segment uh, of the campus uh, completed in construction. And my aunt and uncle were very proud to show me uh, this new emerging uh, campus at the University of California. And of course, I never thought that I'd be coming uh, coming out west uh, uh, in in any capacity uh, for a significant portion of my life. Um, But um, when I arrived at the the medical center, uh, we were really in transition. It's uh, something that seems to be a part of everyday life here at UCI to see uh, transition in buildings, Obviously, we have a, a brand new hospital uh, up in Orange. Uh, all, all of that was uh, uh, really uh, just a dream uh, uh, for for many uh, in the medical center um, going back to the 1980s. Um, but uh, when we first began, for example, in regards to our service to uh, families here on the campus at UC Irvine, we were working out of Center Point. Um, many of the families. Uh, uh, may not recall there was a time when we really didn't have Godshock Medical Plaza or any of the on-campus. Oh, I couldn't uh, remember facilities. before then, but that's amazing. It, yeah. Go ahead. So those are so those were some those were some of the uh, of the early times, um, and then of course the campus community um, has uh, been built substantially with um, a sequence of um, um, housing um, uh, opportunities for faculty and staff, which has 
led to the growth of the UCI community, which has really been a source of joy for me. Um, it's really a very special uh, opportunity to be able to serve one's colleagues and, and their families. And I've really had quite extraordinary um, uh, families to work with. Um, uh, these are, are, are members of our academic community, uh, members of the campus service community, some of the members of the medical center. And uh, the families are all interesting. They represent, uh, as, as, as all of us know from our everyday work, families uh, who come from the four uh, uh, portions of the world uh, to UC Irvine to uh, pursue academic excellence and, uh, and their pursuits, their academic interests, uh, and, uh, and even their families are really a source of, of great fascination, and it's been a, a joy to work with families here on the campus. Well, I think it's one of the many, many generous streaks of yours, Dr. Lerner, that you were willing to be residing right right amongst all of your your clientele, your patients here, that uh, at any time I'm wondering when you might have been broadsided with a request uh, when you had... Uh, you know, had to generously uh, guard your own kind of uh, downtime, that kind of a thing. So um, it's, I think it's a real tribute to you to, to have availed yourself in so many ways uh, right where you decided to reside as well as, t as to practice. Well, thank you very much. Absolutely. Well, I, I wanted to um, say how much uh, so many, I'm, I'm a part of that community to which you refer, and so many of us have, re uh, have so generously received your largesse, your, your medical expertise in dealing with questions uh, that we never knew as parents we were ever going to have to deal with, whether it was a, um, some kind of a, a terminal situation, a, um, a uh, behavioral kind of uh, crisis, a developmental delay issue. You have really been uh, there to sort of to hold that hand in a special way. And I, I want to, as we pay tribute to Dr. Mark Lerner this morning on Ask a Leader on KUCI, um, 88.9 FM in Irvine, KUCI.org, that um, one amongst uh, us, uh, the one of the nurses on your staff, Winnie Ramos, has also um, weighed in with how, how knowledgeable you've been as you've been able not only to talk to patients, but you've been able to talk to the parents of those patients. And as you've given them a first-time diagnosis that they weren't, they weren't ever uh, aware, they never thought they'd have to deal with, that you have had a special touch with putting the, a better light on what that diagnosis meant for that parent's child and uh, find a way for them to see that it was not the end, but just a new, a new tack that the family, the child, the patient uh, were taking. And I, I want to include that in a, a tribute this morning as we talk to you. Um, and you've, uh, and, and Winnie Ramos was also herself lauded for her nursing service here at UCI in this last, uh, this quarter um, here. So uh, that was, it's a tribute from a tributary, of a tribute. But um, so in, um, have you noticed if you want, do you want to talk to some of the trends in those kinds of diagnoses in development, your developmental specialist, in how um, people have taken up the charge with dealing with those diagnoses? Have you, has, have the, have there been changes that you can talk to us about? Well, certainly there is an ongoing review of the criteria which help us to establish um, the presence or absence of a specific developmental disorder. Um, the most notable of those sequences has to do with uh, 
the reviews that, that are part of the um, uh, nomenclature for the Developmental and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. And I think one of the ones that's been most striking to to our community and many others across the country have been the changing um, uh, criteria to establish a diagnosis of autism and related disorders. Yes, indeed. And so we've really seen a growth in, in this um, condition. Many children who in the past were identified for one or another of their specific developmental features, for example, being overactive or uh, possibly having a problem with language or learning, uh, now are recognized to have significant social difficulties, um, difficulties with aspects of um, over-focused or stereotypic thinking, um, as well as these um, uh, additional uh, behavioral concerns. And so we've seen a growth, which has really taken uh, the portion of individuals identified with autistic spectrum disorders from a number of one in um, um, 2000 when I was first trained. Um, to now establishing that diagnosis nearly one in, for nearly one in 100 boys, um, approximately one in 140 to 150 of all of our children um, are wow. being identified on the autism spectrum. And I think that that's been a source of concern and sometimes confusion for families. We see many families who have um, sought to identify some type of an external contribution uh, to this um, growth uh, in the, in the uh, diagnosis of autistic uh, disorders. Um, there's some wonderful work which is being pursued on our campus at UC Irvine by the National Children's Study. Indeed. We've talked, I talked with Dean, Dr. Dean Baker about that mm -hmm. uh, last, um, I'm trying to think if it was in the winter. But, and so are you, you've been contributing and you were going to say about the study. Well, again, I think that the study allows the opportunity to really try and identify what the contributions are from the environment. Um, as broadly defined, our social environment, our physical environment, and our, within our communities to um, the um, um, uh, um, emergence of uh, developmental and health disorders. Um, but again, a lot has been about changing diagnoses. I, I certainly know this for children who, when I was in my earliest training, were previously identified, for example, as having an over-focused ADHD, children who had problems paying attention because they were always paying attention to just one topic. Uh -huh. um, they were um, uh, acutely focused on, on an area of interest, which made it hard for them to engage with their peers. Many of these children were, previ were previously uh, diagnosed as having an attention deficit, and now uh, they're seen as having uh, an autistic spectrum disorder. So that we see the incidence of, uh, of ADHD being significant, but if one in 10 children have an overfocused ADHD, uh, one might anticipate that um, that might represent, again, at about a, a rate of uh, a half percent or 1% of children, and that becomes the kind of incidence, in fact, that um, uh, we now see described in many of the more recent studies. And um, are you thinking, though, um, that as much an environmental factors in play as, uh, as a, a genetic component to this? Well, this is an area of active research and debate. There was a recent article that came out really within the last uh, week or two um, trying to address um, some of the uh, possible um, uh, differences in the rates of ADHD between fraternal and identical twins. I think many, in, um, we're certainly identifying a whole host of new um, uh, genetic contributions to autism. There are a lot of uh, gene um, areas and gene products which have been linked now to uh, autistic-like behaviors. 
Um, but whether that represents 90% of the contribution or alternatively a large minority of the contribution with environment playing a larger role uh, is something that uh, experts in the field continue to debate. It's still out there. And we, and we know, though, with a, a genetic contribution might be that there is a genetic predisposition that uh, an environmental trigger is going to, or to uh, the, um, pl have a play, a role in uh, this kind of a developmental disorder or developmental uh, condition. Uh, that's certainly true. Certainly it's been an area of concern in, in uh, many households, um, but I think we've had some false paths, for example, the over-focusing on uh, a possible role for vaccines or vaccine yes. components as contributing to autistic disorder, and that's an area in which um, some very uh, early and uh, at this point um, uh, now recognized to be weak science has created, I think, some uh, undue uh, um, um, stress for parents and, and, and in fact, uh, has likely contributed to some of the vulnerabilities we now see for emerging reemergence of, of serious infections. The in whooping our cough the and whooping all cough the other. in California and the, the deaths from whooping cough and the, the, the uh, thousands of cases of whooping cough and being just one example, measles, uh, um, um, which is starting to show up again in the United States, that too. being a second. Wow. Just when you thought you had enough to deal with, with uh, pediatric medicine colliding with uh, public health concerns, uh, yeah, that, that uh, reaction and the pullback, pushback of uh, simply meeting vaccination um, re requirements and that kind of a thing. Well, I, I wanted to um, find out uh, with your new role in, um, at the Orange County Department of Education, what would that look like and um, how will we be able to uh, follow your leadership in that, uh, at that um, jurisdiction? Well, I'm really very excited about this new opportunity. Uh, you know, obviously, this is a bittersweet moment. It's a, yes. a new opportunity, and it's, at the same time, um, a, a difficult thing to say goodbye to, uh, to patients um, who've been uh, such a source of inspiration and joy to me. It's um, been a two-way street, Dr. Lerner. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I will be beginning approximately mid-August in working with uh, the Orange County Department of Education under uh, the direction of Bill Habermill. And I... Um, I'm in a position which has been uh, supported by uh, the Hogue Family Foundation, um, by um, our health care agency, um, and uh, um, the Orange County Children and Families Commission. And they have recognized the opportunity to try and strengthen some of the work that's been done on behalf of the wellness of Orange County students, uh, recognizing, of course, that children who are well are going to be ready um, to learn in a significantly higher fashion than, than children who are, are struggling with issues, whether they represent medical health, physical health. Um, some of the issues we see even in the area of obesity, all of these things influence uh, our children's ability to be able to engage in the, the task of, of moving through childhood and, 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 and uh, accomplishing um, the academic learning, which will uh, really be the base for um, their future life success. And so they've created this new position. They've asked me to come and engage with groups such as the um, uh, groups working on aspects of health and wellness in, in our schools, um, with our school nurses, um, who are a group that are really quite uh, important to me. Yes, and with uh, Dr. Dan Cooper becoming the director of uh, pediatrics with UCI Medical, you sort of, it, there's, a, there's a brain trust that's well acquainted with each other as you uh, take on this new position with the Orange County Department of Education. I'm, I'm very excited to, tr again, part of my goal if I do this well will be to help 
<clears throat> excuse me, to create a um, connection between um, some of the um, extraordinary scientists at UC Irvine, um, whether it be in our School of Public Health, our program in nursing, or in our Center for Translational Science, uh, with um, the resources um, of our um, both our Department of Education and also our individual school districts. I think combined, we really have an opportunity to be able to um, bring some of our emerging new knowledge on how to uh, promote wellness and uh, to promote learning uh, in an optimal fashion um, to the schools. Well, your expansive uh, take on where you can go with this position is most reassuring that it's all, all the areas that uh, are concerning us in public health as the, the uh, exploding, growing giant of childhood obesity and everything looms over. Um, I'm, I'm gratified to know that that's what you're taking on. And I know from past, uh, uh, past sorts of gestures from you, you've not shied away from weighing in on your concerns in public health. We've seen letters to the editor, to the local media about what, what's the safe way to go for, um, for our daughter's health, for reproductive health, for um, general health and, uh, and developmental uh, specialization. So I, I, it's, it's really a it's wonderful to take to make a tribute to what you've done and to look forward to see what you will be doing with the Department of Education. Are you in? Um, so this is funding from these foundations that you talked about. Now uh, with an Orange County's uh, perhaps proclivity to be uh, to address some budget shortfalls um, and take will there be a a jeopardy of this of sustained support of your uh, particular functions here as the medical director for this Department of Education? Yes, Noah, this is uh, what we would generally consider on the university campus to be uh, soft monies. Very, um, it could be very soft. Um, but, but again, that's part of our goal is to try and identify an opportunity to show scientific and, um, and um, um, service advancement in a fashion that should be able to attract continued um, uh, funding. But it, it's certainly, that's part of my challenge. I think, you know, the, the better I do the job, obviously, the more I'll be helping kids, but also the more I'll be helping to ensure um, that there will be a continuation of the position uh, past my time uh, and participation. And hopefully we'll, we'll have a, uh, created a foothold that uh, will allow um, uh, medical expertise to be wedded to um, our educational leadership and uh, to our nursing leadership in the schools. I want to ask if there is a template for what you do at the county level with what other counties, what other well-developed public, uh, state public health programs around the country uh, for you to follow. Well, um, school health, again, is an established uh, um, area of interest within pediatrics. There are school physicians who have been in leadership. There's a school health um, uh, um, uh, interest uh, group within the American Academy of Pediatrics. Um, Howard Terrace is a, um, a recognized uh, leader in the American Academy of Pediatrics nationally uh, for his work in San Diego and uh, around San Diego um, County. There is a, a school physician for L.A. Unified School District, obviously one of the largest districts um, in the state. Indeed. Um, but um, country. the history uh, in Orange County was that there were often individual physicians who were volunteering their time, making uh, a commitment of their own personal interests, or 
going back 20 or 30 years, establishing small contracts to be available uh, as a consultant to schools for the various kinds of concerns that come up under uh, all of the, um, uh, of the economic pressures that you mentioned before. Um, these kinds of relationships have generally slipped away, and, and uh, that's one of the reasons, I think, that we've uh, uh, tended to see um, a um, loss of the um, position of school uh, physician. Um, uh, not only in, in Orange County, but around the state. Well, I am so glad to hear that with all the administrative literacy you can take to the uh, really uh, astute medical mind that you've brought to your practice here at UCI, that you'll be the one in charge. And I I want to do a number of things I want to say I, that, say a, that we all of us owe you a debt of gratitude for what you have delivered in an inestimable medical practice here. We want to take stock of um, your um, leadership in the community with the pub your public health voice, and I hope that um, as I continue to, to deepen what I try to accomplish on my program here on KUCI, that we can uh, check in with you as uh, you continue to develop your role as the director for the Orange County Department of Education. And uh, we have you again on the program. Well, thank you very much for uh, this time, and thank you so much for those kind words. Well, thank you very much. Uh, that was Dr. Mark Lerner, who is retiring from his service here at UC Irvine Medical Center for uh, after having been here for the last 28 years, and he will move on in August as the first medical director for the Orange County Department of Education. Dr. Mark Lerner, thank you and all the best. Um, I want to thank you all for being my guest today, and um, we'll stay tuned. I am a medicine man. I do a medicine dance. I am a medicine man. I sing a medicine chant. I am a medicine man. I have a medicine tail. I am a medicine man. I walk a medicine trail.